there is a clear understanding that the war that is being fought in Ukraine is not only about Ukraine. And it is not only about the territorial integrity of Ukraine. It is a battle of values. It is a battle of visions. It is a battle of a crazy lunatic that wants to, to, to engage in revisionist policies. You have to bite the bullet, as they say, and, and, and engage in that support because, again, the cost would be too great for our democracies if that doesn't happen. Welcome to NatSec Tech from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Artificial intelligence holds tremendous potential to solve problems, increase economic efficiency, and improve lives. But it also involves risks that could infringe on privacy, reinforce biases, fuel disinformation, and more. With us to discuss the promise and perils of AI, Dragos Tudorake. He is a member of the European Parliament. He was lead negotiator of the EU AI Act and is vice president of the Renew Europe Group. Thanks a lot for coming in today. Many really thanks for having me. So I talked about the perils. I talked about the possibilities. Where do you come down on the matter of AI? Well, I come down on both. Uh, as you rightly said, AI does bring enormous potential. And I think uh, maybe without realizing it, it is already part of our lives. It is part of the many services that we access. It is part of the many products that we buy. We don't know it, but it's in there. And it's going to help, and I'm, I'm, I'm convinced of that, it's going to help uh, in almost every walk of life, in every aspect of the way our societies and our economies function. But at the same time, it does bring risk. It does come with risks, and um, risks that are as mundane as discrimination, bias, things that maybe we will bump into every day, but also more significant, structural, existential, as some people call them these days, risks that we absolutely have to take seriously because without that, ultimately people don't trust the technology. And at least we in Europe, as, as we had and as our debate unfolded over the last couple of years, the issue of trustworthiness of the technology has been the key uh, element because without it, then people will not be trusting and then the confidence that you need to have in society erodes. So. We've been trying to balance out between the perils and between the benefits, and also in terms of how we approach legislation, we also try to put rules in there that are meant to protect our interests as human, the interests of society at large, but at the same time, put the right stimulants in place so that innovation can still take place. So I want to ask you about this EU AI Act. It's slated to go into effect, hopefully, the end of the year. Is that correct? By the end of the year, I am confident that we can finish the negotiations. So we are still hard at work negotiating. Uh, we have a system with what here would be Congress and Senate. We have the Parliament on one side and the Council representing the member states of the Union on the other side. So we are now in that process where I, as the lead negotiator, on the Parliament side, am negotiating with the Council. Um, I am convinced that we will finish these negotiations and we will get the final vote by the end of the year. Uh, the question is how long it will be before the rules come into effect. And there, it's an issue of readiness, readiness on the side of the companies themselves will have to go through the motion of, of preparing their compliance. But also, and I would say that even more important, the readiness of the government authorities and also the central authorities at the EU level that will have to go through a ramp-up process because finding the right talent and skills to put in the public sector to make sure that they properly implement and, and enforce when need be, this legislation is not, is not going to be easy. So all in all, uh, my anticipation would be that 
counting from now in one year and a half time, these rules will be hard law. And so how do you address the perils of this technology without limiting the possibilities? <laughs> fundamental question for this one. And um, many people believe that we have arrived to the conclusions just like that, that we have chosen the horizontal approach that we have chosen, and some criticize that by, by saying that it's too far-reaching and that it will hamper uh, innovation. But we have looked also at other possibilities, and I look also now with, with quite a lot of interest at the debate that takes place here in the US on the possibilities of, of regulating it. The one thing, if I open a bracket, the one thing that I find uh, very refreshing now in this debate is that the question of if seems to be already off the table. I was listening earlier today at this conference, uh, the statements of, of two of the senators that are now uh, part of the group that, that works on, on AI in the Senate, and the issue of if seems to be done with. So it is clear that there will, there will need to be regulation here. We went through the same motion. So once we figured out the if, we went to the how. And when you, you go to the how, um, we have taken an approach where we are not labeling technology itself as being high risk or low risk or, or, or risky in itself, but we are looking at the uses of AI. And we are categorizing the actual use cases of AI into those that would be so detrimental to the values that we want to protect and therefore we have to prohibit them. And I will give one example, yeah, social please. scoring. Social scoring. So social okay. scoring, exactly what China does with its people, we say it's so incongruent with our values, with how our citizens interact with, with their governments that we simply cannot allow for technology to be used for those purposes. So uh, there is one example of an application that will be prohibited. And then there is a category of, of high-risk applications in domains such as banking or insurance or health or education where we say AI is not bad. Of course, AI will be part, is already part of many of the services being provided in those sectors, but they do bring about risks. Why? Because an AI that is going to dictate the creditworthiness of a person over another needs to be free of bias. Uh, same thing for, for an AI that would be allocating tasks in uh, a school for, for children. So for those type of applications that we would be labeling high risk under the regulation, there will be a set of obligations that are not, I like to label them as light touch uh, because they are common sense. Uh, transparency, from my point of view, is common sense. Data robustness and accuracy and, and be mindful and diligent about the data sets that you use to train the algorithms, for me, should be common sense. But the question is, can you rely entirely on the self-discipline and the moral compass of the companies to do so? Unfortunately, if I look at the, at the social media and this information experience of the last couple of years, where we have tried with a code of conduct, a code of conduct that many companies came around, but the net effect was not there. So sometimes, and I believe, at least we believe on the EU side that that time is now, sometimes you need to bring in hard rules. And that's what we're making with, with, with the AI Act. And, uh, and hopefully also in the debate here in the US, a similar conclusion will be reached so that afterwards we can try and have convergence between the US and the EU on how we deal with technology. How exactly do you answer those critics who say it will hinder innovation, it will dampen European competitiveness in this sector? Well, I'd like to think that we have learned a lot from previous legislation, like GDPR, 
which was, I think, rightly criticized by many as hampering innovation because we have just bestowed those rules upon companies without really tools to help them comply. And we've learned those lessons. And right now, for example, in this regulation, first thing we do is we mandate technical standards, which we did not have with the GDPR. In the GDPR, people had to figure out the legal gibberish in the text. And that was not easy. Without talking to a lawyer, a startup company of engineers would have had absolutely no way of understanding what they had or, or, or could not do. This time around, again, we give a, a strong mandate for, for technical standards to standard-setting bodies, standard-setting bodies which are industry-driven. And with that, we hope that we can translate those legal obligations into the kind of language that engineers will understand and help compliance. Second, we are also giving a very strong mandate to member states to establish sandboxes. What we want to do with these regulatory sandboxes, as we call them, is to level up be the playing field between the bigger and the smaller players and those that would want to engage in developing high-risk applications, which again could still go on the market but would need to go through compliance, could then test that compliance, could make mistakes in a safe environment and interact with the regulator to achieve uh, compliance. So all of these tools, uh, in our view, would help also innovation, would help companies to continue to want to develop AI, not be scared of it, and not be scared by the rules, because it would be easier for them, less costly also, to ensure compliance. As you've mentioned, the U.S. is now looking at the question of regulating AI, although it hasn't made any concrete moves. And you said it's important or would be good to align U.S. and European policy on this. Why is it important and what are the consequences if there is not alignment? Um, maybe I'll start with the consequences because it's easier to answer. Uh, let's look, I mentioned earlier GDPR, let's look at the data privacy frameworks that we have. We have had for quite some time a, a, a very clear with, again, maybe not in terms of innovation, maybe not ideal, but still with, with, with a very clear framework for data privacy. And in the US, such, such framework did not exist. And, and what happened was that the data exchange between the EU and the US had to suffer. So we had to invent and negotiate all sorts of privacy shields and safe harbors and, and all of those which afterwards were, was, were, were coming down in our course, uh, in our core system in, in Europe. And I think we have to avoid that. That is why, for me, uh, it's, it's absolutely essential that we arrive at a functional equivalence between our normative uh, systems. I am not naive. I know that it would be quasi-impossible for the U.S. Congress to actually adopt the similar kind of legislation like we have. And I always say they don't have to because we also have two very different legal systems. We are by design very prescriptive in the way we write our laws in the EU, whereas here, because courts are more active, uh, there is a judicial activism that we don't have in Europe and therefore rules here can be more generic. So for me, the net effect is what matters. So even if at the end of the process that has right now started in the Senate, in Congress, which I hope will soon lead to some rulemaking, even if that rulemaking will look different from the one uh, in the EU, as long as the net effect is, is there, I think it's, it's then, uh, I think the, the, the hope for alignment, the hope for convergence is delivered. And what it means is, is first and foremost for our companies. Our companies on both sides would need to play by the same rulebook. And the more we invest in aligning the rulebook, uh, and then the standards underneath that rulebook, then again, we're going to help companies. Same thing for the end users. Citizens here and over there will need to know that, again, when they put trust in a system, it's the same system that plays on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think, and this is a very important point, uh, 
convergence and alignment is essential also for the example that we give to the outside world. I think we have a duty. Uh, the two economies that we represent, EU, EU and the US, I think we have a duty to work together on a standard that could also become a global standard. Let's not forget that we have China out there who will be actively trying to undermine that effort and who will be trying to put its own vision of the world and its own understanding of how the technology plays into societies. And we absolutely cannot afford to do that. So tell us why we can't afford that. What's at stake? Well, I mentioned earlier social scoring. China will ever, will forever understand the role of technology uh, according to its own vision of how society works. And that vision is totally different from ours. We put the citizens at the very center, we put the rights of citizens at the very center, we put the values that underpin the constitution of the US, the treaties in the EU, at the very center of what the technology needs to aspire to deliver and, and to respect, whereas China does not. In China, it is the control of the state over the citizens that matters, and, and therefore technology will be used for that purpose. So that's why uh, we do have very different visions of how the technology will be playing out into the future. And out of that uh, conflict of visions, <laughs> I would say, uh, we have a duty, again, uh, across the Atlantic, but also working with other like-minded partners out there to find a way to converge, to find a way to put out there a framework that respects our values. You have called for a global summit on AI, and in fact, uh, the UK is organizing a global AI safety summit in November. Um, what are your hopes for that meeting? What do you think might come out of it, if anything? Well, I do hope that it can be a moment when we start to bring all of the conversations that have started earlier, some of them lately a bit more in the G7, in the G20, in uh, various bilateral fora, all of these ideally should come together because, again, otherwise we risk fragmenting the discussion on global governance. And for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, there is someone out there who is waiting for us to fail or to be late at the table, which is why I hope that this summit uh, can deliver that, can bring the leaders around the table and agree a common place where all of the global conversations about how we bring in a, a, a converging governance on AI can take place. China's been invited. Do you want them at the table for this conversation? It's a very interesting question. Um, I always said that at some point in time we will have to talk to China. Uh, it is inevitable even if, as I mentioned earlier, they look at it with very different lenses than we do, but they do play with the same technology. We do have right now foundation models, actually some of them even stronger, more potent, with more parameters than some of the most powerful foundation models that we have in the U US or in the EU. So inevitably, they are a player that we have to talk to. But the question is, how do you talk to them? What do you have to do before to prepare so that that conversation is one where you have the right elements in your pocket to make sure that you are trying to set the tone of the conversation in the right way. That is why, for me, first and foremost, we have to align ourselves, the like-minded, and then start a conversation with China. Even then, can you win the argument with China? Well, not simple. Uh, and if we look a bit at some of the other conversations that we have with China on other topics is certainly not going to be easy, and certainly China is going to protect its own interests and its own vision. But if we stand united, 
And if we bring as many of the like-minded out there around us, and why not also to reach out proactively towards the global south, there is now many of the countries in the global south are sitting on the fence and, and trying to figure out who's going to win the argument. And therefore, there needs to be also this active diplomacy towards the global south on technology, among other things, on critical material, among other things, then yes, I think we have a chance to win the argument with China. Has the West really um, been derelict when it comes to that? Have they failed to talk to the global south about technology in the ways they should? Um, absolutely, yes. Yes, we have. Uh, I think we have ignored for a very long time, um, in a way, our duty of care in the relations with the Global South. Um, I think we haven't found the right tone uh, in the discussions with the Global South. I don't think we have found the right angle, the right perspective in bringing that conversation. I think we have to come down a bit from some of our usual reflexes of superiority. And I say in, in fully understanding what, what, what those consequences are. Um, and, and address them in trying to build partnerships that are mutually uh, mutually advantageous, critical materials, for example, if we if is we simply want, is it too late? China's well, been I, doing this for sure, uh, but because they have been doing this for some time, I think also the the ugly effects of the way they did it start to be felt by some of the countries in the global south. They see now the cost of selling out to China. And I think there is an opportunity that we must absolutely uh, use to now bring in our own narrative. But again, it very much depends on how that narrative looks like. Um, if we just go and hope that we're going to build a supply chain where we simply take out the resources, well, we're no different than China. So we have to find a different way. We have to build a partnership where we understand what is needed there. They want growth just like we want growth. So how can we build those new supply chains that actually introduces production facilities in those countries, that introduces and builds local production and supply chains that help those economies grow? And I think with that growth, also the partnership starts to become a bit more sustainable and credible in the effort that you made to convince them to come to your side of the argument rather than to the others. So if this summit or some follow-on event actually comes up with a global safety regime, does it have to include an enforcement mechanism? Does it have to include penalties? And if it doesn't include those things, what's it worth? I absolutely agree. Um, do I think that is going to come out of the summit now? No. Uh, too early. I think it would be too early, too ambitious. Uh, what I would hope, as I said earlier, uh, to see coming out of the summit, at least it's an agreement on a framework to continue the discussion. Um, and also what I hope that I will not see although there are some signals of that, is a bit of a competition amongst us like-minded on whose model gets to, 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 to shine. And I think, again, we would be foolish if we would be engaging in that sort of a competition. Competition is healthy, competition is good, but again, we have to look at the overall objectives that we have. And here, again, is a coherent global governance. And therefore, I hope that we will agree on a process. Uh, in London, it can be a place for that for a process and a framework, and then use that framework, use that process to then together figure out what kind of a rulemaking you want to make at a global level. And then, of course, those rules without enforcement mean nothing. So that has to be built in. I want to switch lanes here and talk for a bit about Ukraine. Um, 
you're a strong advocate of lasting European support for Ukraine. Is that realistic? Well, it has to be. Uh, it has to be. And as politicians, we have a duty to make sure that it stays long term and that we don't blink in this process. And it's certainly not easy. Uh, take my country. I'm, my country borders Ukraine. My country has been uh, welcoming Ukrainian refugees with a cost, with a cost for the population, with a cost for the state. My country is one that right now entertains almost uh, the biggest chunk of the trade routes coming out of Ukraine, bypassing the blockade of the Russian Navy. And I am seeing an erosion in the level of support in the population, but we are still at higher 60% numbers, which is still good. But certainly there is a risk in there. There is a risk of the topic becoming overly politicized. And I look at elections in Poland. I look at elections in the Slovak Republic coming up. And the topic the of EU? Ukraine, not to mention the, 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 discussion, the, the elections next year in the EU. But at the national level, if the topic becomes overly politicized, then yes, there is a risk that some of the parties that might win elections would feel bound to change tack. But I do remain optimist. Again, if I look at, at the latest opinion polls in most member states, if I look also at the way all the measures that we have taken at the European level, from sanctions to new instruments that are meant to help Ukraine, we have broken taboos in our defense policies that no one thought was possible. From supplying weapons to purchasing weapons, things that had never been done in the EU before. And I think that the support that, mm, that made it possible can be entertained for a long enough period, again, if we invest as politicians in that. I'm also looking with concern as, uh, into what happens here in the US. I also see here that it becomes a partisan issue, and I think, and I think colleagues here should not allow for that to happen. Uh, and, and, and they should be, uh, although I can understand that, that people at some point could ask the question, why would we continue to support that war? I think politicians have a duty to explain why that is important. So if there is a change in, in uh, party in the U.S. White House and support for Ukraine ends from the U.S., can and will Europe step up? Well. Europe has already stepped up. I don't know how much that is visible here, but uh, already... I think, I think there's recognition that Europe has played a part, but the bulk of the aid has come from the United States. I would beg to differ. Oh, all right. The latest all right. figures, the latest <laughs> figures, if you combine the effort that is being done at the EU level with the individual member states' efforts and investments, in fact, we have overcome the US. I don't know how many people realize that. Not but me, have, apparently. Well, we have <laughs> overcome that, but that's less important. I think the question is, will Europe step up in case the support here in the U.S. wanes away? I think yes. Because, again, it is very clear, and it is very clear across the board, across political parties, uh, both at EU level and in the, in the member states, despite elections and some of the rhetoric that is typical in, in, in campaigns, uh, there is a clear understanding that the war that is being fought in Ukraine is not only about Ukraine. And it is not only about the territorial integrity of Ukraine. It is a battle of values. It is a battle of visions. 
it is a battle of a crazy lunatic that wants to 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 engage in revisionist policies and i don't think that there will ever be a majority in our societies in europe that would be willing to trade the values the freedoms that we hold so dear for anything that resembles what russia wants to achieve so therefore it's not going to be simple uh, because again also for our citizens explaining that you have to put in more effort and and um, take the, the 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 crisis that we have right now in eastern europe with the cereals uh, coming out of ukraine it's not easy for the farmers it's not easy for the farmers in romania in poland in other places but we have to bite the bullet as they say and 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 engage in that support because again the cost would be too great for our democracies if that doesn't happen so the eu has put new tools in place to counter economic coercion from adversarial countries china is not mentioned explicitly but do you see this as representing a shift in the eu's china policy and approach to china it is I think that if we compare um, some of the narratives about China, going back only a year ago, not to mention two years ago, three years ago, I worked on the Indo-Pacific strategy uh, in, in Parliament uh, before the war. And there were many that were naive enough already before the war that Russia started that were thinking that economic interdependencies with Russia would be sufficient to guarantee security. Well, Russia proved them wrong. And again, if we wouldn't be learning from that lesson, if we wouldn't be understanding that the interdependencies that we have with China are no guarantee of beha- for behavior uh, on, on the China side, again, it means that we will remain naive. And uh, I have seen a, a sizable shift of, of direction, a sizable shift of approach even in some political parties that had traditionally been very uh, outspoken about maintaining a very friendly and and commercially uh, vivid uh, relationship with China. Uh, We also realized that decoupling, as we used to, as we used to say, uh, maybe half a year, one year ago, is not realistic, certainly not in the medium uh, term. And that's why we are not speaking of de-risking. But everyone is clear about that. Um, I have also worked very recently on the Critical Materials Act, which is an act that is meant to pretty much deal with the interdependencies with China on on critical materials. And again, I have not felt a single political group in the European Parliament that does not understand the urgency of starting this de-risking process, basically severing those dependencies that would be conditioning our decisions on more strategic issues when it comes to China. Some people overlook at President Macron, for example, and ask, is Europe really in alignment with the US? Well, I think it is. Uh, It's true that President Macron's declarations are sometimes stirring up a lot of debate. And I think he also likes to make some statements that create debate. But uh, I would invite anybody that that is interested to read some of the last statements of President Macron, made publicly, by the way, uh, both towards Russia, and many were accusing him of being too friendly to Russia or trying to somewhat be very mindful of the interests of Russia when looking at a potential uh, peace plan or anything of the sort. Look at, at the latest statements of President Macron in that respect. They are very clear 
as to where he stands on the war between Russia and, and Ukraine. The same thing for China. Uh, I think what President Macron wanted to say, maybe he didn't say it in the right words, but what he wanted to say is, uh, yes, we engage in a de-risking process. Yes, we look at interdependencies, uh, but we have to do it looking also at the, our European interests. And I think that's not different from, from what the U.S. is saying uh, as well. Um, so it's, it's, I wouldn't call it a divergence of views. Uh, certainly, we still need to tweak our overall position as EU on China, but I am convinced that we are on the right track. Thanks so much. Thank you. Tudorake, thanks so much for coming in, a member of the European Parliament. Thank you. And this has been NatSec Tech from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks a lot for joining us.